The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox coming to you from, well, where else? My home here in Zurich, Switzerland. As we've done over the past few weeks, I will take you, dear listener, into the studies, kitchen tables, and dens of some of our fantastic columnists all around the world. First, I will chat with Amy Donnellan, who's holed up in County Clare, so we can delve into her extremely popular story this week on virus vices. She's referring to the spike in alcohol, weed, and junk food sales that we've seen all over the place, as well as a bump in porn consumption and even um, sex toys. Anyway, I'll let her elaborate on that. After that, we check in with Anthony Curry in New York to discuss the coming onslaught of earnings, which kick off next week with J.P. Morgan and the other big American banks. Anthony wrote this week about J.P. Morgan chairman Jamie Dimon's annual letter to shareholders, which he called the best of his career. The letter, which is about half the size of his usual ones, also figured into my column this week, arguing that the only thing companies should be addressing is how long they can last in this environment. Last but not least, Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong walks us through a brewing scandal at Luckin Coffee. The Starbucks wannabe went public with great fanfare and a who's who of Wall Street underwriters, but it's now engulfed in accusations of fraud. It's not a virus story, but it's a perfect example of what J.K. Galbraith called the bezel. Basically, the idea that fraud expands with good times and emerges in bad. So let's get going. So, Amy, uh, greetings. Where do I find you this fine day? You find me in lockdown in Clare on the west coast of Ireland. So I'm in a nice open countryside. So I get to go for my daily walk in a nearby park uh, that is actually still open. That sounds almost idyllic. It is. It is. How about you? I am in Zurich. Uh, yeah, haven't left. <laughs> still here. And uh, it's actually not so bad, you know, and I, but I, I don't quite have the access to the vices that you have uh, that you wrote about this week in a, in a story that I think was uh, will prove to be our most popular story um, on the Breaking Views website and also um, uh, on the on social media. Your piece basically says today's virus vices store up tomorrow's problems and you are able to get uh, pornography, marijuana, alcohol, cigarettes and chocolate all into crammed into one delicious story. <laughs> Indeed. So <laughs> basically the idea was um, I think a lot of people are finding themselves at home uh, locked up, they can probably go out for maybe one walk a day, and they are finding maybe some unhealthy ways to spend their time. So, yes, so alcohol sales uh, in the US, there was a 243% increase in online alcohol sales in the States. And the UK saw a nice big bump to 20% uh, sales in March. Uh, and they said that was to do with binge buying alcohol. So people going on to this um, app called House Party, and essentially having like a party with their friends and buying alcohol for that reason. I've seen this. I've seen I've seen this house party thing in action as I have two college age students, uh, kids in my home. Well, and I guess there's this sort of question of people buying stuff. So online now you could imagine people go, well, I can't go to the store or I don't want to go to the store. So I order it in. So that could be one thing. And then, of course, binge buying um, doesn't necessarily mean we have binge drinking, of course. This is true. This is true. And certainly the supermarkets, 
you know, they were obviously inundated with demand for things like hand sanitizer and toilet paper, but they also saw a big increase in alcohol sales, uh, mainly because I think people thought that there may not be as much supply that, that that may get interrupted, particularly because a lot of it is imported. So there was a bit of concern about that. So yes, I think some people are actually maybe just hoarding that alcohol. Right. But kind of separately to that, um, obviously in certain states in the US, uh, marijuana sales are legal. So California, Oregon, Colorado, uh, but they've also seen a big uptick in um, sales, about 50% um, in the month of March. And that again was, some people thought that might've been hoarding that, it was unclear as to whether these marijuana shops would be considered essential or not. Right. In some states, they were at first, and then they sort of reconsidered these. Um, and so people were, I guess, they were packing up um, on weed and stuff like that, but, you know, afraid that they wouldn't be able to get access in a couple exactly, of weeks' time. Exactly. Um, but, and cigarettes are obviously kind of linked to that. So um, the likes of Imperial Brands and British American Tobacco, they had kind of trading updates recently and they said that they saw no interruption to kind of the normal sales that you would see, which is obviously very unusual for lots of companies. Um, most are seeing um, at least some hit to their to their revenue. So it again, this was taken to mean that either people are hoarding cigarettes or just buying a lot of them because they think they're going to be sitting inside and why not smoke some cigarettes while they're inside? Well, I mean, the answer is because uh, this is a respiratory infection. <laughs> so, I mean, in theory, you know, um, you would think that that's like the one thing you might think about cutting out, right? Smoking yes, in general. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, exactly. They, they, there's, you know, research to suggest that smokers actually fare quite badly with coronavirus. So it is surprising to see people actually turning to cigarettes. But then I suppose there's this idea that, oh, God, if I'm going to die um, of coronavirus, then maybe I should just enjoy myself in my last few days. So I, I guess I think, yeah, as your as your story uh, uh, quotes the, the, the famous Frederick Nietzsche, that mm. which does not kill us makes us stronger. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's not necessarily true. The other thing you point out in your column is that people are eating junk food or or they're you know snacking on things like chocolate and sweets and I, and I could see that in the you know in the midst of all this you say oh the hell with it what's what's wrong with an extra snickers bar i mean i'm i'm going to you know there's always a chance i just die of coronavirus i mean you know what's a slow killer like obesity <laughs> in the face of that but but that is the concern right i mean i think you 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 mentioned that the ceo of nestle was saying something yes yes uh so michael schneider was being interviewed uh, he was interviewed last week and he was basically saying that they're you know they're really kind of struggling to keep a lot of their goods on shelves because there's just so much demand in supermarkets but that he had this point that actually in times of stress that these snack foods as he called them they actually can be just as helpful as nutritious food. So you you have to find ways of, of coping with stress. And so that's, yeah, that's interesting. So Mark Schneider, who's the CEO of the company that makes Kit Kat and all sorts of stuff like that, is yeah. basically saying that there are people who, it's a sort of, I guess you could call it, it's, it's like a comfort food thing or a comfort response, which aligns a bit with the, the sort of interesting advice that was given by the World Health Organization, which you also cited, which, which certainly you know, the World Health Organization is not telling people to smoke more weed, <laughs> drink more booze or anything like that. But they did say something about stress, didn't they? They did. So they were they basically exactly they're kind of counseling to stay away, actually, from these kind of very unhealthy behaviors, drugs, alcohol. But they're also saying that you have to have ways of coping with stress and to, you know, draw on strategies that have worked for you in the past. So 
that may be, you know, making a cake, baking a cake can be quite therapeutic, but then also you're eating that cake. Um, and that this is kind of what the, the quote that they use is that this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. So mm. whatever kind of gets you through the day is sort of important to use during this time. Yeah. So that is quite interesting. And some of the some of the behaviors that we kind of talk about in this piece aren't necessarily very unhealthy. So you, for example, Ritex, which is Germany's largest uh, producer of condoms, has seen double the sales um, in March again. And a lingerie shop and Summers in the UK has seen a big uptick in sales of its uh, sex toys. So people are not necessarily doing things that are unhealthy, but they are finding sort of interesting ways to pass the time that is leading to a big bump in sales for some companies. Yeah, and porn. I think you also pointed that the, yes. the Pornhub, the, the like largest adult entertainment website, saw something like a 12% increase in global traffic. In global in traffic. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So and what was interesting about their data as well is they had kind of broken it down by country and they had shown that in countries like Germany, Switzerland um, and the Netherlands that have quite thriving sex industries, they saw a very big increase um, in their traffic. Um, the thinking being that as brothels close and social distancing is part of everybody's daily life now that people turned to the Internet for um, for this vice. Well, I guess yeah. So that so we so either we see a an increase in porn addiction, or we see a whole lot more babies made nine months <laughs> down the road, possibly uh, depending on where they are. Um, but th this has all had translated in some interesting um, interesting stock market performance data. So you one of the things we have in this piece is the is um is a comparison of various stocks relative to their benchmark. And you point out yeah. that Nestle yeah. has outperformed. Uh, Lint in Springley, which is here in Switzerland, makes chocolates outperform BAT, British American Tobacco, yeah. True Leave Cannabis is outperformed, and Diageo, the maker of Johnny Walker and other fine tipples, has also outperformed, I guess, the UK market. Yes, absolutely. So exactly, they're they're all. I mean, let's face it, most stock markets are have had a, a very difficult time, but these, as you say, have actually outperformed um, the benchmarks. So it suggests that uh, most people think that these are somewhat safe havens um, as people turn to these things to kind of get through their days. Yeah, they're all negative to be yeah. clear, but they're not as negative as not the as benchmark. The one, I mean, the the kicker to your piece, of course, is that the one outperformer of all. The, the one stock that's outperformed all these, which you mentioned in your story, is actually Novo Nordisk, which is the Danish maker of uh, the world's largest maker of, of diabetes treatments and insulin. Insulin, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess there, we're, one thing we can expect from all this bad behavior is that uh, there will be no uh, decline in our in obesity or uh, diabetes rates. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, there are also analysts that are suggesting that the likes of Weight Watchers, whose share price is down actually like 50% from the start of the year, that it could see actually a huge bump, a big 50% bump uh, once this all comes to an end and people are allowed out of their houses and they can start tackling their waistlines, which have been expanding during lockdown as they, as you said, turn to comfort food and alcohol. Mm, okay, well, it's sort of uh, it's a, a long-term problem to deal with the short-term stress. That's it, exactly. Well, thanks, Amy. Uh, be safe there in uh, County Clare, and yes. uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, you too. Thanks all. 
Okay, so Anthony Curry, where do I find you on this fine day? Uh, I am sitting in a room in a rented cottage in Chappaqua, uh, about an hour north uh, of New York. We've, we've escaped the city for a couple of weeks to, um, well, give the, our young kids a garden to play in, frankly. Well, that's 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 uh, Clinton country, isn't it? It is indeed. We've not seen them yet. Uh, <laughs> but then again, we're not really trying to see anyone. <laughs> no, that's the whole point. Well, I wanted to chat with you about uh, both what you wrote about, which also uh, sort of inspired me to write something mm -hmm. this week. So you um, quickly uh, set upon Jamie Dimon's uh, annual letter uh, on Tuesday. No, when was it? Monday. Monday, Monday morning. Yeah. He came out. Now he it was about it was about half the, the length of his usual uh, 50 page missive. Um, but as you wrote, this was probably his most effective um, letter yet. What was what was it that stuck out stuck out with you? Well, I think in general, you look back at his letters of the past, and he always packs them full of useful information, whether you agree with him or not. You can you can take issue with what he writes, but it's it's normally useful. This one is probably his most useful yet because it is so very uh, directed at just one thing, which is uh, the pandemic, uh, how and how J.P. Morgan and others, frankly, should deal with it. Um, so he's kind of laying out a roadmap. That's not not to dismiss what he's done in the past, but this is much more focused, which which it has to be, and and he deserves uh, kudos for that as well. He spends very little time talking about um, the bank's performance, although and when he does, he puts it in the context of this makes us far more secure. You know, the fortress balance sheet. He talks about the port in the storm. He talks about and has done for for ten, twelve years, mm. and to, to say that we you know we're now ready to take on what's needed. But also he lays out what shareholders what customers, what employees, and even regulators and lawmakers might and should and want and should want to expect from the from the bank and the banking industry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it sort of struck me as now. Remember, Jamie had um, had had emergency uh, heart surgery That's just right. a couple of weeks ago, and 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 he had only gone back to work last week. So obviously. Um, there was a lot of furious editing and, and rewriting because, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. You look at uh, at uh, Larry Fink's letter, which was a couple weeks earlier. It was clear that, that a lot of that had already been written, you know, from the looks yes. of it. There was a lot that was written and then you had to rejig it with with. I'm sure that um, Jamie, I mean, I, I assume Jamie had written a lot of this beforehand and then just had to toss half of it. Uh, I, I think you're probably right. Yes. So. Um, he even mentions in there, look, he, he initially wanted to write a lot about um, competition and how competition is back. He said that's basically done now. Although, I mean, to be fair, and um, from what I've heard in the past, he does uh, pretty much like writing right up to deadline. Um, would have made a great journalist, obviously, in, in that sense. <laughs> more um, like you, uh, Anthony. No, I always write past <laughs> deadline. Come on. I, I'm, I'm far more, far, far better journalist in that sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he probably has has rejigged it. But then again, he's also had time to think about you know, be, being off. Uh, recuperating, he's had time to think about the effects of uh, of all of this on the industry and, and and on the economy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I so I used it for my column uh, yesterday because I thought it was it was I'd already been thinking about like what are companies going to say? We've got earnings. We have the big bank earnings coming up next week. Yeah, actually, J yeah, JP Morgan uh, lands on uh, Tuesday next week, so the 14th. So, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what you, what you were talking about before this came out, and uh, was, was uh, and which you've, you've now turned into the column, is you know what do we want to hear from CEOs either in their shareholder letters or in their earnings, or even if they appear elsewhere, whether on you know TV, radio, whatever stuff. else, annual yeah. meetings, everything. Um, and it is crucial, right? It's, it almost takes us back to the, the the financial crisis. You know, forget about earnings. Tell us about well, I suppose, you know, as you point out in your piece, 
basically right now cash is everything isn't it yeah i mean cash you know there's there was this meme that went around about uh, a little while ago uh, on the on the financial twitter that was basically saying something like um expect ebit doc to be the new sort of financial metric EBITDA, earnings before, oh, lovely yeah mm. earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization and coronavirus now of there was actually there is there now a lot of companies are actually going and saying but look 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 to their lenders and these this is going to be people who mm. are we're already in trouble, I'm guessing, and yeah. saying, look, don't, you know, this does not trigger certain covenants. This does not constitute a default. Um, and so look at these numbers, not the real numbers. But my my view is like, and, and I think Jamie did a good job of this. You just got to say, look, here's how bad it can get. Here's what our situation is. Here's what our, in the case of a bank, here's what our capital will look like. He used this um, sort of Uber stress test number yeah. in the thing, which you pointed out. Um, you know, if you had, I think, uh, what was it, a 30% reduction in the I think economy. it was. I think it's a 34% um, uh, reduction in GDP in the second yeah. quarter, lasting to the end of the year. Unemployment going up to 14% by end of the year, which actually may even look conservative at the moment. Um, and that's far worse. You know, the, the Federal Reserve does a stress test of the banks every year and has done since soon after the financial crisis, obviously. And its its prognostications for that are far uh, yeah. less severe. So, and what Diamond said from that is, you know, you can expect us by the latter half of the year, if that if that comes into effect, is, you know, we'll probably will have burned through, I think, $17 billion of equity, as, as well as, you know, the, what they make last year, $36 billion of, of net mm -hmm. profit. So all that, and yet we would still have some really good capital ratios. What right. he didn't do is then put on that and say, and by the way, by doing this, we will have um, increased our lending, we would increase our loans by almost $300 billion, which is almost 20% of, of the current size right. of the risk-weighted assets. So basically, he's saying, we're ready, we're able to do this, um, and it won't hurt us. And also, he makes a very good point earlier on, very clearly to make this point, that the bank has not asked for and doesn't want to take any kind of aid this time round. Right. Remember last time round, of course, the banks were at the center of the crisis needing the aid. This time round, they're in far yeah. better shape, at least. In yeah, the that's right. That's it, So the banks, are in, they aren't the, the, the cause of the crisis now. Yeah. And in fact, they're all going out of their way, as Jamie did. And I think you'll see this in Brian Moynihan's letter. I think you'll see it in Corbat's uh, letter at Citigroup. You'll see it from all the CEOs. And, and and I'm hearing it in Europe and and Switzerland. You know, they're all saying, "Look, we we're very we didn't cause it this time, thank God." Yeah. But we are we need to not just that's not the point we want to make. The point we want to make is that we're here to help and we're going to play a role in getting liquidity into the economy, working with governments, working treasuries as they're trying to do right now. I think that's I think that's right. The the harder thing for so banks, you know. They go through these stress tests in Europe. They go through those stress yeah. tests in, in the U.S. We've sort of been prepared for that. The question really is, you know, what we're going to see in the next after the banks coming out is just the industrial companies, automakers, things like that, big companies, and then consumer. Anything focused on the consumer is just, you know, it's only going to be, as my column said, it's the really only question is how long can you last in this environment? That's all that people yeah. want to know. And that yeah. means I need to know what your cash is. I need to know what available cash you can you can call on from your banks will be. I need to know what you can do to reduce your costs during that period, operating costs. And I think that's really the only. So anyone who comes out with, um, you know, cutesy arguments about, well, look over here and look how we did really well in the first, you know, yeah. two months of the quarter. Yeah. It's around, they deserve the, to be the, crucified. Yeah, the the only things, frankly, I'm going to be looking for in earnings, and you know, we'll be looking at uh, the main ones over here. We banks and, and autos. From my perspective, are going to be: Did you are you trying to mask something in your quarter, or did you make something from a, from an investment banking perspective? 
have you have you somehow got whacked uh, in the in the ups and downs of volatility in the last few weeks of the quarter? And that's about it. Otherwise, I think, as, as you point out in the column, um, uh, Richard Handler, who's the CEO of, of Jefferies, basically said, uh, I think in, in his tweet, let alone elsewhere, about earnings, because they, they report on month earlier, said, no, this is utterly irrelevant. I mean, I forget the exact hashtag he used. I think you put it in the piece. But earnings just are irrelevant now. It's all about whether how long how well you're set up to withstand whatever that is. And it's amazing, frankly, how few companies have come out and said anything just yet. Yeah, he said our our all-time record quarterly results. Now, he got that in there. But he yeah, said our all but ancient history. Like yeah. the point is nobody cares. And then he went on to talk about their risk weighted assets and stuff like that. So it's all now, of course, this is just the financial, you know, dollars and cents. And are you, you know, are you prepared for this? How are you prepared? What is yeah. your cash balance? What do you and what do you do? What measures are you taking? That's really the only thing that anyone will want from a financial perspective. But then there's the bigger picture, which is like, well, what are you doing with your employees? What are you yep. doing with your customers and your suppliers and all of your constituents? Because this really, if you think about it, this moment, this 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 plague has totally like accelerated the the whole issue of stakeholder capitalism. Like it was one thing to two months ago be sitting at a on a comfy stage at the Hotel Belvedere in Davos saying, mm. oh, well, you know, we believe in this and sustainability that and we really think of employees. Oh, OK, that's great. Now. Is your this is the the proving ground? This is it, and if you do it right, great. If you don't, it will be remembered. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and that's and, I, and it's not just within your company. You're right. It's it's maybe you think about your supply chains. If you think about you know whether it's end customers, whether it's your employees, whether it's supply chains, you need to think about everything because it's it this this just proves just as we all knew, but we could easily ignore when it was one company or or an industry. Everything is so interwoven that if you don't treat people properly, um, it's going to come back to haunt you. Um, we've already seen a few examples of that over here. There's a small company over here called Hobby Lobby, which was involved in various issues a few months ago, oh, a few years ago. Um, and it's laying off employees, being not giving them health care, all that kind of thing. It's it's those are the kind of things that will get remembered. Whereas, you know, the likes of going back to Jamie Dimon's letter, he says in there, this is what we've done for our employees. Also, he's kind of laying out what he wants, uh, how he wants the, 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 the gradual rollout to go back to work to look like. You know, we want more testing. We want to be able to let people come back gradually. It's got to take uh, weeks, if not longer, before everyone can come back to work. He's, he's even laying the groundwork there for employees so that they know roughly what to expect, even though he won't have a great deal of influence on that necessarily on the policy perspective. Well, the good news is that um, so we're starting to see some of this pop out. Heineken on Wednesday morning uh, came out and said basically scrapped its entire 2020 guidance, just threw mm. it all out there. But then they they made the very they said, look, we're working with our banks. Now, they're not doing the financial detailed financials because they have their results or, you know, their mm. actual thing. And they're doing that in a couple of weeks. But basically, the, the, there were two messages. Everything that you thought was, you know, that we predicted before is wrong. And we're not predicting, by the way, yep. which is the other rule. Do yep. not predict unless you are an epidemiologist with a PhD in, you know, virus and pandemics, or you lasted, you 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 somehow made it through the 1918 Spanish influenza. You basically have no right to predict. So yep. that's good. Don't do that. Second was no whining. And and Jamie, you know, I think he didn't. He, you know, as you you point out, he's often targeted regulators in the past. He didn't really do it. He said there were some mistakes, but like, we'll talk. That's for another time. Heineken said, basically, look, um, no predictions. I can't tell you. All we're doing right now is uh, marshalling our cash, going, pulling in our bank lines, doing everything we can. And then, uh, you know, and actually he, they said that after they had pointed out that they are 
working on the safety and welfare and well-being of their employees, their staff, um, and then uh, suppliers, stuff. So, so they made the right, you know. But that is that's a Dutch company owned, controlled yeah, exactly. by a family with a long history of so you know so-called stakeholder capitalism. Um, it, it's it's not those guys that you'd expect to surprise you. <laughs> it will be someone else, and that's what, that's, that's right. what's going to be interesting to watch over the next. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I will say on, on on diamond on regulations, he did take uh, one dig, saying that the rules uh, since the crisis have become poorly designed, that. and it's not a lot of there's not. But it was it was one small thing, and mostly he was sticking. He was being quite diplomatic, saying basically this is he's, the underlying tone is if you really want us to lend, you've got to be willing to relax some of these rules, which which you know the Fed and others already are beginning to do and have been saying that we, we're looking at all this and we want to make sure you guys can do it. The one other thing he did, which I think is interesting, interesting given the, some of the issues we're having with small business loans over here but also harking back to the last crisis where don't forget Jamie Dimon stepped in bought what WAMU and uh, Bear Stearns and then got whacked with massive uh, fines for them that those companies mortgage issues he did say that we want to make sure in, in all these programs we're getting involved in that the government's come up with that we uh, we don't get exposed to future litigation risks so there's that as well but again that was sort of packed up quite quite diplomatically for him I would say. Yeah. And no, that's so. kind of going back to your point. That's that's kind of what you want these guys to do. Don't right. whine, don't moan, make your point in a decent way and make sure everyone knows how you're dealing with uh, with the business and with your employees. Well, on that note, uh, yeah, enjoy the next few weeks of earnings and all oh, the excitement that's going to come out. Hope keep yourself and your family healthy uh, out there too. in Chappaqua and when you get back to Brooklyn. And uh, we'll talk soon, Anthony. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Rob. Pete Sweeney, it's a pleasure to talk to you, not least because we get to talk about something that's not directly coronavirus, for one. You have been writing a bit about fraud, fraud in a, a number of Chinese companies, the, the most prolific of them being Luckin Coffee. This is the, the Chinese Starbucks competitor. You know, one of the things that's been really interesting is the way that these guys came out with some some stuff that was pretty shocking, sent the stock crashing and all sorts of regulators and everybody else probing uh, what, what went wrong. And we'd go into that in a second. Um, and we've had a couple of others that have also come out in the wake of that. But it's, it's, so it's not really related to the virus, of course. But to me, there is a sort of sense that when you do have these crises, you know, fraud becomes a little bit harder to hide. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in this case, uh, Luckin was seen as being under pressure because of the coronavirus outbreak in China, kind of slowing consumption. But I mean, the interesting thing is that in, in a way, you could have seen this as positive for Luckin on paper, because their whole pitch was that like Starbucks is going to have all these fancy stores. We don't have that, but we're going to deliver, you know, so we're going to be part of this e-commerce delivery thing and people trapped in their houses can order stuff. That's not really so it how should have been their moment, out. right? In other words, it, well, you don't some people saw it. Yeah. It's that. But, um, you know, you can't their problems were not related to any sort of macroeconomics. The problems were related to they were losing money on every cup of coffee they sold. They've been doing it for a while. And it turned out that or at least Luckin says that their chief operating officer was fabricating a bunch of sales up to the tune of like 40 percent of 2019 sales, which means that, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars they were losing you know, or probably even higher than that. And the cash burn they were going through is might be existential. So, I mean, there was every reason to dump this stock um, right, and dump right. what they did. This thing used to be used $12 billion today. It's worth like one. What's really amazing to me is how- One billion dollars. One billion yeah. dollars. That's I think the piece, the first piece dollars. we all, yeah, we wrote about this was, you know, when it first came out, uh, you and uh, Rob Searn in New York sort of 
talked about this concept of the bezel that economist J.K. Galbraith had popularized this idea that fraud expands with good times and it only emerges in the bad. And it's kind of funny. I remember thinking I had that same line in a story that I wrote when this when all of a sudden this guy named Bernard Madoff had a big holy cow moment in the middle of the financial crisis. It was sort of it was a similar situation, right? Yeah, well, the irony here is that short sell attack on there was a short sale attack on Luckin making exactly these allegations about its its sales being fabricated, which is a common problem with Chinese companies listed in the States, or at least the ones accused from fraud. It's very common accusation. But like that just bounced off. Right. You know, these guys said, well, we went and sat there and watched Luckin coffee stores, you know, for weeks on end or whatever. And like they weren't selling anywhere near the amount that they say they are. How long ago did they come out with that? That was in January, and man, it just bounced right off. Like I think there was a brief nobody, dip. In nobody, nobody. Is that right? So people just were like, "Ah, eh, whatever. It's muddy waters. These guys are always they're yeah, cantankerous, short sellers." I mean, That's the thing is, yeah, it just completely bounced off, and then and and of course, Luckin denied it, and now they've admitted it. And this is a pattern what, what we've seen. We've seen attacks it? against Pinduoduo, which is seen as a competitor to Alibaba. There was a short attack there. Nothing. It is it is not it is proving more and more difficult to just kind of come out reports accurate or not and really knock the stuffing out of Chinese shares. What did it what in this case this was the company out. coming clean? Yeah. Why did they come clean? Like, well, what was apparently the to the credit, um, it was the auditor. It looks like from their statement that it came out during the auditing process um, and they discovered this. Now, it may be, you know, to your point that given the rate at which Luckin is burning through cash, the executives you know, that, that it became quite clear, you know, this hole became more obvious because of the economic stress. That's that's entirely likely. Um, but most of this auditing report was for, for results from 2019. Like it has nothing to do, like the money inflation happened completely before the outbreak and everything. And who, um, was the, uh, who was the auditor in this case? In the, it was in EY's China affiliate. And this has been a sore spot of diplomatically between U.S. financial regulators and China for a long time. I'm taking back into ancient history. In 2011, there was a massive surge of fraud allegations against Chinese companies, a lot of which had been, you know, sponsored by top shelf Wall Street banks. Well, a lot, some of, and and a lot of them had been audited by, you know, Deloitte, Touche, you know, with the fine print that this was like the Chinese entity associated with Deloitte, with EY, with whoever. Right, um, the right. problem is that according to Chinese law, you know, these these auditors cannot be compelled um, and implied can't can't legally disclose a lot of things that are deemed Chinese economic secrets. And this led to this huge lawsuit between the SEC and 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 Deloitte China over this particular company, Long Top Financial, that blew up in a way that was similar to the way that right. Luckin is doing now. What about the investment banks? That's kind of you had another piece that went out this week. Where yeah, you well, I mean, the about- question is like this was definitely I mean, like some of the guys that got delisted in 2011 were like, you know, total pump and dump operations. They snuck onto the exchanges through reverse mergers, you know, and nobody had heard of anybody who was involved in finance. In this case, this was top shelf. I mean, Luckin from the beginning was raising money from like Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. Catter Investment Authority is in there. Um, the IPO sponsors were top shot. You got Credit Suisse was the lead. Morgan Stanley and Barclays, then Haitong Securities in China and CICC, both of which are pretty top shelf. And they all stood behind this. And it'd be one thing to say, like, they're cynical, but not only did they they sponsor the IPO, but they extended these massive margin loans to the founder, um, Lu Zhengyao. In a di- not only margin loans, but they extended as one 
tranche of them, which was reported $200 million before the company had even listed. And yeah. this guy said, I'd require a personal loan in exchange for, for, for a mandate, um, which is really kind of unprecedented. Um, so, he, said, so wait, let me, let me understand, unpack that. Yeah. So this guy, the founder, yes. basically said to the investment banks pitching on the beauty contest to do the IPO, ah, you know, it's, it's not just about the valuation of the stock, which is, you know, often the main uh, consideration in choosing an investment bank underwriter. I also want you guys to give me a margin loan against that stock to the tune of two, how much did you say, $200 million? First, that was the first tranche. That was the, that okay. was the tranche that was backed by yet to be listed luck and shares. It was like, if you want a piece of this business right. and the rest of the business I'm gonna be doing, which quickly turned into like convertible bonds and stuff like that, you need to give me this personal loan to me now. Um, that was the report, but it didn't stop there. After it listed, he continued to tap this line of credit from this, this syndicate sort of group that eventually yeah. grew to include Goldman Sachs. And it ended up adding up to 500 million, $518 million, I think. I mean, the whole IPO raised, I think, like 650. So this is spivvy to start with. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, there was, I mean, there were well, who did it? warning so who, signs who, who, that like there are questions it, about the business model. Pete, why did the, who did this? Like which banks decided that this was a good business to pursue? In terms of the margin lending, it was the IPO sponsors themselves. It was Credit Suisse. Stanley, yeah. Credit Suisse, Morgan Stanley. I'm not sure about Mar Barclays. Goldman Sachs came in um, and some other guys. But um, it looks like basically, you know, the quid pro quo was like you sponsor the IPO, give me this loan, and then I'll give you the, the business in terms of the, I mean, keeping in mind margin lending itself is, is decent business. But the problem in this case is like these guys didn't do their homework on how much credit was being extended because now they're stuck with the collateral, which is 76 million shares in Luckin you know, uh, which are completely tanked. And that's like one third of the outstanding share. So they're gonna be really, they've got a liquidity problem along with everything else. Um, so there's a lot of head scratching about why these guys let themselves get dragged so far into this. And I'm sure, you know, in these institutions, there's a bit of, a, of an internal investigation as well. Must be, right? I mean, because they're gonna lose money on this stuff and it just looks bad. To, yeah, on paper, to, they're to down, lend. I think, like $130 million. It's not clear who loaned what, but like, right, that's, but assume, but that's, that's assuming they can clear these shares at, at the current market price. Right, but it just looks bad, too, to, to basically be involved in this kind of business. Now, what what you've got, this isn't the only one. So Luckin, um, you know, the, in the wake of Luckin, there's been some unlucky uh, other bits coming out, right? So some other Chinese companies yeah. uh, that listed in the U.S. with sort of similar fanfare and, and you know, blue chip investment banks behind them. Tal Education Group is one that you, you were mentioning. Yeah, they had been attacked. Um, they have admitted to an employee inflating some sales. Um, it has not appeared to have done a massive dent to this company which has had a huge run up in its share price, by the way, like online education during the coronavirus has been seen very positively by the market. So Tal has actually outperformed the S&P. It's been a pretty good stock to hold. Um, this took a bit of a bite out of it, but um, all in all, like it hasn't hammered it. Ditto, there's another, I mean, more directly riffing on the luck end thing. There's been a short sale attack on iQiyi, which is kind of the Netflix of China. Um, that took a little bite out of it, although not that much. But that was explicitly kind of like using the Luckin thing as I think the Luckin right. was in the headline. I mean, look, Muddy Waters, all these guys remember 2011 very well when they made so much money, when basically like they, they just shorted Chinese stocks to the extent that like 
every Chinese ticker in New York was was discounted. These people were just delisting because the mud was right. being spread to everyone. And if there's a return of that, you know, it could work out very well for the shorters. But it's so funny, you, you know, at yeah. first they come out with some of these things. You mentioned Pinduoduo, um, Tal, for instance. I mean, where, where, where the short sellers come out and or they don't land a punch at, at first. But then over time, it turns out that some variation or some elements of their accusations prove to be true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough work if you're a short seller. You can be right as rain and still lose money. And, you know, so far they're, I mean, luck in, you know, was, was a good score in the end. Um, but it didn't come because of their short sale attack. It'd be an argument it came from the auditor. I mean, maybe their right. short sale attack inspired the auditor. But it's still a pretty risky business. And, like, if you look at, like, the indexes, there's no sign, really, of a mass evacuation out of Chinese shares in New York yet. Um, that might be to come, but it's 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 not here. Well, thanks, Pete. Now, go ahead and order yourself a matcha coffee latte from Luckin, delivered to your home there in Hong Kong. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Rob. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Amy Donnellan, Anthony Curry, and Pete Sweeney. And hats off to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Karen Kwok, Lee Anderson, and Jamie Lowe. Finally, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room. Thank you.